Well, we really do need to be the Lord's transformed people, don't we? If those kinds of truths are to be known to us and come out from us, from the heart. And that is the the theme of these next few verses that Paul writes in chapter 12 of Romans. And we're going to title it this evening, Transformed Lives in Christ's Church. This is the first specific theme that Paul addresses. So last week, in the opening two verses of Romans 12, we considered Paul's introduction to the final section of this letter as he starts to address many ways in which a living faith should make a difference in the life of a Christian. And we looked at seven general truths or principles which he first takes us to in the opening two verses, and it's important to keep those in mind all the time as we go through the rest. It's all because of God's mercies. It all begins, it continues, because of the mercy that God has shown to us in Christ. It's something that all of us must willfully do. We must willfully give ourselves to these things. Each of us are to be a living, holy sacrifice, acceptable to God. It is the only proper response for those of us who now are the Lord's children. Stop allowing yourself to be conformed to the world. Be transformed by thinking differently and live according to God's good and perfect will, which he makes plain to us in his scriptures and through the power of his Holy Spirit. And I've heard those opening two verses described as God's manifesto for the Christian life. You know how political parties will produce a manifesto in the run-up to an election campaign, and it's just an overview of all of their general aims and policies and usually laid out in fairly broad outline but not necessarily in very fine detail. Well that's verses 1 to 2 although despite being a broad outline those two verses are still quite meaty nonetheless aren't they? Plenty of us to uh, be humbled by even there but now Paul gets down to some of the nitty-gritty of Christian living. The Bible is wonderfully relevant, it holds no punches, and it addresses all the real issues and struggles and difficulties and temptations that all of us have. And we need this because we are so used to seeing things only done the world's way, aren't we? We're so bombarded with the unacceptable being presented to us as praiseworthy. We're presented with vices as if they are virtues. Immorality is presented to us as normality. Sin is spoken of as an outdated concept that we finally managed to discard. Truth is something that you now decide for yourself. And we're being bombarded with all of these kinds of messages all the time. And against this, there are many godly attributes which are imparted to the Christian at conversion. And that's done by means of our union with the Lord Jesus Christ, as we've seen Paul explain to us. And those things now have to be cultivated and exercised in each of us, by each of us, individually, but also 
within the life of the church. And the reason we need to give ourselves to these things is because our own sinful flesh still tries to resist, will resist unless we remain diligent and give ourselves wholeheartedly to these things. And this is what Paul is spelling out for us now. And he'll do so covering many different topics. But his starting point is your attitude towards one another within the church. In presenting your body as a living sacrifice to God, the very next step of application, the the very next proof that this is how you now are living is to be seen and found in the believer's attitude and life towards other believers and within the local church in particular. So it's probably very helpful for every single one of us to have kind of pinned up in our mind's eye by the mercies of God because of his mercy to me and because of his mercy in me. I have to be like this towards the saints of Christ. I can be no other way. And when it comes to the intricacies of our relationships with one another, when our pride and our emotions can so easily have far too much to say within our own hearts, uh, we need to keep in view at all times, holy, acceptable to God. In all of our thoughts, in all of our attitudes, holy, acceptable to God because of and through his mercy. Paul knows he's on tricky ground with this one because the tendency in all of us is to become very defensive, how easily offended we can be when we can sense a pointing accusatory finger turning in our direction. And so he qualifies everything right up front that he's about to say. Through the grace given to me, he says, the grace given to him as an apostle of Christ and all of the unique gifts that accompany that particular grace, all of the unique authority that comes with that particular grace that he has as an apostle, everything that he's about to say to you and to me, we must receive as being from Christ. And the first thing Paul has to say on this issue is to address a single, very fundamental principle. So here's point number one, and it's just the first part of verse three. Pride must give way to humility. Do not think of yourself more highly than you ought to think. The easiest thing in the world for us is to have a far higher opinion of ourselves than is ever justified. This can show itself in in a number of different ways. One is that you're always talking critically about other people. You're frequently heard speaking about others in less than flattering terms, often emphasising what you see as their failings and their shortcomings. And of course, the unavoidable implication, if you're someone who does that, is that you don't think such things exist in you. 
these things could never be said of you. Uh, perhaps there can be an, a very unhealthy undertone and undercurrent of disdain and even derision when you speak about other people. Uh, there's a sense that you for yourself, of course, are far better than this, which is why you're so comfortable talking about these others in this way. You're better than that. Such criticisms you feel could never be levelled against you. It's a great danger. There's no explicit boasting. There's no explicit uh, building of yourself up. Uh, but it's the obvious inference in what you're saying. It's the giveaway that you do think of yourself more highly than you ought to think if you're ready to speak critically of others. Another way that this kind of spirit can show itself is more direct. It's probably less common, but it's more direct. And this is when you do actually speak highly of yourself. Uh, we might say you're someone who constantly walks around with your trumpet in your hand and you're only too ready to blow it at every opportunity you get. In conversation, you're ready to speak more highly of yourself than you do of others. You have an opinion of your own abilities, a high expectation that others should acknowledge it. You think that others should submit to your superior knowledge and experience. You think that your great gifting ought to be acknowledged, ought to be utilised more than it is. I'm worth more than this. I deserve more than this. Or perhaps that kind of attitude might not always be so obvious to others because actually you're someone who, well, you give little away. You're the kind of person who keeps things very much to yourself. But nevertheless, the spirit is within you and it gnaws away at you, can fester within you and a growing spirit of frustration and resentment builds up within you because of it. Uh, this can show itself sometimes by the fact that there are certain ones in the church you simply ignore. You're on another level compared to them. So you find yourself actually treating people with partiality in the church. Not everyone gets treated the same, which in God's eyes is a very great sin amongst his people. You have your own little in-crowd. But these over here, or him or her, well, you'll never be seen speaking to them. Maybe too many things that you see as being wrong with them. Too many things which you hold against them to ever go and talk to them. Maybe because you feel more, much more highly of yourself than you ought to think. I have to confess, as I was going through all of those things, I'm pretty sure that at various times there's been something of all of that in me to some degree or another. Thinking of yourself more highly than you ought to. Well, it can do much harm. It can cause great discouragement to others and it can even do that to yourself as well. Those kinds of hearts can be ruinous in a church and it's not acceptable to Christ. And it's such a common issue, such a grave danger that we actually find 
Paul speaking about these kinds of things frequently throughout his letters as he writes to all the different churches that he's in touch with. Uh, Later on in this very chapter, verse 16, he'll be saying this, Be of the same mind toward one another. Do not set your mind on high things. Associate with the humble. Don't be wise in your own opinion. When he writes to the Galatians in chapter 6, if anyone thinks himself to be something, when he is nothing, he deceives himself. The opening verses of Ephesians 4. I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you, walk worthy of the calling with which you are called, with all lowliness and gentleness, with long-suffering, bearing with one another in love. To the Philippian church in chapter 2, let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Quite the opposite ought to be true. And it's not just Paul who understands who understood these things. James, James chapter 4, humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord. The Apostle Peter, 1 Peter chapter 5, therefore humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you in due time. And we actually discover that these things have their roots in the Old Testament. That should not be any surprise to us. These truths and principles stand forever. Isaiah chapter 57, thus says the high and lofty one. That's God, by the way. He he is the high and lofty one. He's the only one who is to be the high and lofty one in the church. Thus says the high and lofty one who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. I dwell in the high and holy place with him who has a contrite and humble spirit to revive the spirit of the humble to revive the heart of the contrite ones and Paul makes clear that that kind of humility is not to be understood only in relation to God although that's where it begins with our own relationship to the Lord in our humbling of ourselves before God because it's all only because of his mercy towards us but it has to be towards one another also. It's been said well that humility is the fertile soil for service. Humility is the the fertile soil for serving God. Humility is the fertile soil for serving one another in the life of the church. And the Apostle Paul, well, if ever there was a man who had a high opinion of himself, That was old Saul of Tarsus. If ever there was a man who lacked humility, that was Saul of Tarsus. And Paul has learned this this lesson hard and well for himself. And uh, he he knows that this can be such an area for problems within the church. This is the first thing that that he confronts and that he addresses for us under the inspiration of God's Spirit. 
all that you have, all that you are, it's all been God's gracious gift to you. There's no place for any high-mindedness in the church of Christ amongst any of us. So that's the first point that Paul makes in the first half of verse 3. And then in the second half of the, of the verse, where he talks about uh, thinking, think soberly as God has dealt to each one a measure of faith. False thinking must give way to right thinking. Think soberly, he says. Do you remember that time when Jesus crossed over to the far side of Galilee and there on the shore of the lake uh, he met that demon-possessed man, the man who lived amongst the tombs, the man who often was found running wildly naked, cutting himself with stones, the man who couldn't even be chained because he would break them loose, the man who under the influence of demons said that his name was Legion because he was possessed by many of them. And Jesus cast out those demons into the herd of pigs, which then ran into the lake and were drowned. And immediately that that man had been released from that torment. He is described as being clothed and in his right mind. What a release that was for that man. What a thing for that man to be next to Christ, finally in his right mind. And the, the Greek words used in the gospel to speak of that man in his right mind are the same words that Paul uses here where we read, think soberly. In the Greek, it's exactly the same word. To be in your right mind as a Christian. To be in your right mind before God and how you think about him. And to be in your right mind every time you think of one another. You're thinking right. And so the implication is clear if any of us are not demonstrating the kind of humility that we're being exhorted to, then you do not have a, a right mind before God. You don't possess the kind of right mind that a Christian should have, at least not yet. Your mind is lacking in the kind of renewal and transformation that Paul talks about in verse 2. Now that doesn't have to mean that you're not a Christian but you're still a Christian whose mind, whose way of thinking has not yet been sanctified the way it should have been, at least not yet. Matthew Henry, the Bible commentator, he makes a very helpful observation at this point. He said, it's good to be wise. It's bad to think that you're wise. It's good to be wise. You should seek wisdom. You should ask the Lord for wisdom. 
But it's good to put yourself on a pedestal thinking that you're wise. And Paul explains that we are to remember that to all Christians, God appoints a measure of faith. Think soberly as God has dealt to each one a measure of faith. Now this isn't saving faith being spoken of here as if some can be more saved than others because that's impossible. This is the, that measure of faith by which we walk with the Lord. This is that measure of faith by which we serve him day by day. This is that measure of faith and grace by which we are enabled to serve the Lord to his glory. It's not the same in each of us and it's as God apportions to us. There's no grounds for boasting of any sort because it's all of God from beginning to end. What God requires of you, what God requires of me is to think and to live and to serve according to the measure he's given you. Be a good steward. Whatever it is that the Lord has placed into your hands, be a good steward. Uh, whatever the gifts are that he's given you, be a good steward of them and with them. Now the Lord Jesus compared to you and me, well he had faith, he had grace, he had the Holy Spirit without measure. And yet, there was none so humble as he. You and I do not have that degree of fullness of grace and fullness of faith like Jesus had, not even close. And yet, would you or I dare to think of ourselves more highly than even would be found in Christ? There's nothing that any of us possess that we have not received from God. For each of us, we're to look to the Lord by faith as he gives it to us and seek to live a life that's acceptable to him. This is what Paul is urging in each one of us. This is what he knows will make local churches places of faith and love and unity and grace and mercy amongst one another. And then thirdly, through verses 4 and into verse 8, we have this teaching that each of us have our allotted place in the body. Each of us have our allotted place in the body. As we have many members in one body, but all the members do not have the same function, so we, being many, are one body in Christ and individually members of one another, he says. And it's a really simple picture for us to take hold of. Paul takes the analogy of the human body. And the human body consists of many parts. And they all have different functions. All the parts of our bodies are, are of many types and sorts. And each part of the body has its own particular work to do. And all of those individual parts comprise a single body with a single purpose. So you hit your thumb with a hammer and your mouth exclaims what's just happened and your other hand grabs hold of your injured thumb and your eyes inspect it and your mouth wants to suck it and your good arm wants to tuck it underneath to protect it and help it. And all the time your legs and your feet have you pacing or even dancing around the floor. 
because it's just one part of the body, but the whole body reacts. Because all the parts are members together in the body. That's the, the simple, wonderful picture that Paul places before us. We are a single, unified body corporately, but we're all very individual, differing members in that body. And our unity in the context of the local church exists because of our diversity. In the same way that our physical bodies have their existence because of the many different parts which make up a body. We become a local church because of the many different parts which make it a local church. There is only one God, there is only one Father, one Saviour in Christ, one Spirit, one faith, one Gospel, one Bible, one church. But each local church is a body made up of very different members. Many of you will know that Paul goes into quite considerable detail on this subject, particularly in 1 Corinthians. And if you want to read it, take yourself to uh, chapters 12 to 14 of 1 Corinthians, where Paul uh, goes into, uh, says much more there on this topic than he does here. He speaks of those parts of the body uh, which are totally unseen, yet absolutely vital. Those parts which we treat with modesty, those parts which we happily put on display for everybody to see. Each has its place, each has its function, and it's totally ridiculous for one part of the body to wish it were another part of the body. A body that is just a single eye, or a body that has three eyes, a body that is just a single leg, or which has five legs, isn't a body. It's just a hideous mutation. And we're told in the Scriptures, God it is who has allotted to each one their place, their gift, their role, their function, that the body might exist that the body might function as a body and all as God wills. So we in the church, we're many parts, but we're one body, one body and God assigns each of us a place, a gift, a role. And all is to be done with one another in view. Paul teaches very clearly that all of these gifts and the differences that we have are for the good and the edification of one another, that the body might be healthy and fit and active and useful to the Lord. And so that's why any form of high-mindedness can be so damaging and do so much harm in the church. That's why it's wrong to think any other way, because it goes against all that God has planned for us. It's, it goes against everything that God has actually done within each one of us. It goes against everything that God is seeking to do and accomplish within his church. If a member goes into overdrive, exaggerating that which God has allotted for them, claiming more than God has allotted for them, if a member spends far too much time and energy pulling down and criticising other members of the body, not valuing 
the place and the contribution that God has allotted for them. If a member feels resentful of others, shrinks back and withdraws that which they have to give, the body is going to be lacking in all of these situations. Of course, someone may ask the question, well, how do we get to know what and where our place is in the body? Well, good question. And there's many different ways. Well, you can ask of the Lord that he would show you. You can get involved in areas and activities of the church, those that are available to you, and discover with others where your strengths and gifts lie. Talk to the elders about the options that are available to you. Talk to those who you know who are already involved in different works of the church and and find out what, what that entails. Listen with humility to the views of those who are mature in the church as to those gifts and graces that they can see developing in you. And don't be quick in your own opinions about yourself. Listen. Be ready to listen. And at the same time, quite a number of these things, in terms of serving the body, they don't actually require you to be involved in an organised group or activity. You can exercise these things simply as you talk to people, simply as you spend meaningful time with your brothers and sisters in Christ. Well, let's consider these gifts that that Paul mentions here in Romans 12. There are others mentioned elsewhere, those 1 Corinthians chapters and also in Ephesians chapter 4. You'll find other gifts mentioned in those places as well. But let's just consider the ones he, he mentions here. Prophesying is the first, prophesying. Now in New Testament days, before the completion of the New Testament scriptures, this would have included receiving special revelation from God. And that, of course, was very particular amongst the apostles. For us today, that has ceased. We have the completed scriptures in our hands. But prophesying today uh, still exists, but we would think of prophesying primarily as what we actually call preaching, proclamation, bringing an explanation and an application of the Bible. And those, that includes, of course, things like instruction and correction and rebuke and exhortation, as Paul tells Timothy. Prophesying, teaching, preaching, ministry. Well, the word in the Greek that's actually used is the word uh, from which we get the word deacon, to serve. Now, of course, the office of deacon is fairly specific, but here we see also it's actually a gift and a grace of serving, just being a help to people. Well, that's something that that God can use in many people as he equips them. Being able to see and meet needs in the church and being able to do it without being overbearing, without being condescending, without being interfering. To be able to do just enough but not too much and just in the right way. What a gift that is. Just to get alongside someone and do just the right thing just when they needed it. 
What a, wonder, what, a, what a wonderful gift that is within the life of the church. Then he talks about teaching, a little bit more specific and focused than prophesying, bringing instruction into people's lives. Well, lots of people can do that in, in many different ways in the life of the church. Well, parents should certainly be doing it with their children. It includes the teaching of children and young people. It can include discipling new converts. It includes the older men instructing and equipping the younger men. And likewise, the older women, the younger women, just as Paul says to Titus. What does it mean to be a good husband, a good wife, a good parent? That can be done in an organised way. It can be done informally amongst one another. Exhortation. Now that can be very much a part of prophesying, but again, within the body there are those, often those who are a bit more mature in the faith, and they're able to exhort and encourage the younger ones. Draw alongside someone and just bring some biblical guidance and direction and encouragement, some spiritual wisdom into their lives. Older brother to younger brother, older sister to younger sister. And so Paul goes on. If you're able to give, don't just give the bare minimum. Do it liberally. Do it with generosity. Give as fully as God has enabled you to give. If you're able to lead in some way in the church, do it diligently so that in your leading, you're setting a good tone and example for everybody else. If you're able to show mercy, if you have a gift for empathy and showing compassion, do it readily, do it with gladness. You see some of the needy things in the church that others have failed to spot, but you can see it. Don't run down those who haven't seen it. You've been equipped in a way that they haven't, just as they've been equipped in ways that you haven't. Just you get on humbly exercising that gift that God has given you for you to use in the life of his church and show mercy. As God equips you, the apostle teaches, according to the grace and the faith and the enabling that the Lord has given you, exercise yourself in that place where he's put you in the body of Christ. Do it with humility. Do it with a sound mind. Do it thinking the way a Christian ought to think. Thinking rightly about yourself in relation to others. When you become a Christian, Paul is teaching us here that one of the most immediate evidences that you are no longer being conformed to the world will be the way in which these truths start to be seen in your life. This is part of the life-transforming grace that God places within every single Christian within the church. These truths are contrary to the way of the world, but they are God's truths for the good of his people. These are God's truths for the glory of his name amongst those who belong to him. And in every part and at every point, it's all to be done by the mercies of God.
It's to be done as a living sacrifice to God. Straining to be acceptable to him. Straining to be pleasing to him. Straining to do that which does good and edifies the Lord's people amongst whom we live and serve. This kind of humility, this kind of service, this kind of selflessness, this kind of desire for the good of others, were not these things the hallmark of Christ's life? Well, these things are to be the hallmark of all who follow him. By his mercies, through his grace, by faith, in great humility, beneath the cross of Christ. That's where we serve, it's how we serve. And Christ, through his apostle, exhorts every single one of us to give ourselves wholly unto him and wholly unto one another, to his glory, to his praise.